You are now listening to the November 27th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, everyone. My name is Joseph McDonald, and this is Forgiveness. Last time, we talked about how we need to follow the steps of Christ as our example. One thing that comes up when thinking about what Christ did to those that insulted him is in fact what he did not do. He did not insult them back. People inflicted serious pain on him, but he did not get back at them. He took it even one step further. Jesus forgave them and entrusted everything to God who judges righteously. We said we must follow these examples set by Jesus. Yet, we try to walk in his footsteps and we find it difficult, maybe even impossible. Well, why can we not follow what Jesus did? What is preventing us from doing that? Jesus set an example for us by forgiving those that ridiculed him, hurled insults at him, and inflicted severe pain on him. Why can we not do the same? To answer these questions, let us turn to the Bible and read from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked, when you were living in them. But now you also rid yourselves of all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you stripped off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. These verses tell us about a person that received a new life in Christ. This person lives a new life after being exposed to Christ's life in God. This person does not live in his old body anymore. If you receive Christ as your personal Savior, you are God's child, and you are that new person. Now then, what do we have to do to live out this new life? What is it that we should seek? The scripture tells us that we have to seek the things that are above and set our minds on the things that are above, and not to think or seek the things that are on earth. If indeed this is the case, We should be able to forgive others for the things that happened on this earth. If so, what is then getting in the way of forgiving others? 
The only way to answer this question is if we say we must be seeking the things on earth and not the things that are above. As God's children, we have failed to set our minds on the things that are above. When anger, unfairness, hate, and evil desire toward the person that offended us fill our minds, that equates to us focusing on the things that are on earth. These emotions prevent us from turning to the things that are above, where Christ is. It would not be possible to look upon God when we are full of hate and anger. If we walk with God and look upon Him every day, we would have to overcome these negative emotions, anger, wrath, and malice. These emotions prevent us from looking upon God. If we enjoy looking upon God every day, we would get rid of these earthly things the Bible talks about. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed simply because these things get in the way of us turning to God. This observation is central to our message today. We have to put on the new self in Christ. The scripture we read earlier says, We have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. This verse speaks of knowledge, and knowledge in its meaning is not about merely knowing something. Knowledge comes from the Greek word epigenosis, meaning precise and correct knowledge. This word refers to the ethical and divine knowledge of God, which is precise and correct. In other words, we are renewed to a true knowledge by experiencing the new life in Christ. We can distinguish our new life from the old life, the life after we know Christ from the life before we knew Christ. Once we come to this true knowledge of Christ, we come to understand what is right and what is beneficial to us. Therefore, those that are renewed to a true knowledge choose the right things voluntarily. They do the right things not because they heard that it is good for them, but because they came to understand that it is beneficial for them. Looking at the example of Jesus, we see that he forgave the people of their offenses because he was thinking the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Jesus looked upon God's grace and God's will to be done through his suffering. Jesus did not focus on his sufferings, insults, or ridicules. He focused on God's grace and will. Would you recall the time when you first met the Lord and became his child? What did you gain, and what did you leave behind? Colossians 3.7 says, We also once walked in earthly things when we were living as the sons of disobedience. And the verse right before says, If we live like that, The wrath of God is coming upon those sons of disobedience. Because we became a new self, we have to get rid of our old self and our old behaviors. And we have to look to God who created us and focus our minds on the kingdom of God. We have to live a prayerful life. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and for God's holy will to be done in us. What's going to happen if we refuse to forgive others and just adhere to the things that are on earth? What's going to happen if we refuse to look for the things that are above? 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. If we don't forgive others, and if we continue to harbor anger and hate in our minds, the Holy Spirit inside of us will grieve. We would in essence become the cause of grieving by the Holy Spirit. Would you be okay with that? Are you going to continue to hate those that offend you and make the Holy Spirit of God grieve? Take a moment and reflect upon if you have stopped looking for the things that are on earth. If we look for earthly things, God's will can't be done in us. If we are redeemed by the grace of God, and if we know that we are redeemed, we should be able to give up our earthly conflicts for God. Let's seek and look upon the things that are above. Forgiveness Getting forgiveness right in our lives is that important. That's all for today. I'll talk to you next week. done.
everything that I've done wrong Who could stand But there's forgiveness with you, God Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Refocusing Our Priorities as the Church. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Good to be together around God's Word. Before we open God's Word, though, I want to ask you a couple of questions. One, what if I told you that if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you have unique supernatural abilities specifically designed to bring everlasting good to other people. Spiritual gifts are unique supernatural abilities given to every Christian to build up the church for the glory of Christ. Every word there matters. So listen really closely, especially if you are a follower of Jesus. God has given you unique supernatural abilities to build up other people, specifically the church, for the glory of Jesus. Think about what this means. Unique supernatural abilities. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You need to know as a Christian that God has given you gifts that are spiritual, supernatural in nature. This is important. So this is different from just like natural talents or gifts, which also come from God. 
Every good gift comes from God. But everyone has gifts and talents like that. God has given many people gifts in the arts or music or intelligence or leadership or administration or athletics. Like just turn on the Olympics these days and you see gifted, talented athletes, right? I don't know if you saw the women's 100-meter race, but Jamaica coming in first, second, and third with the winner finishing in a world record 10.61 seconds. Like no other woman in all the world can run or has ever run that fast. I would say that's a gift. But here's the deal. Even these are unique natural abilities. What the Bible's talking about here is beyond natural. It's supernatural. Only for those who have the supernatural spirit of God dwelling in them. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then you would not have these spiritual, supernatural gifts because God's spirit does not live inside of you right now. These spiritual gifts are uniquely supernatural. And it's interesting. So you look here in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and you see different spiritual gifts mentioned. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 lists supernatural gifts of wisdom and knowledge and faith and healing and the working of miracles and prophecy the ability to distinguish between spirits, uh, tongues, the interpretation of tongues. But even that list of spiritual gifts is not exhaustive. Later down in this same passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, you see some of those same gifts listed, but you also see others added. Apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then you go to other places in the Bible, like Romans chapter 12. And you see prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, acts of mercy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we studied just a few months ago, we saw that marriage and singleness are described as gifts from God. And the same word that's used here in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to describe gifts there. So the picture is God gives his people a variety of unique gifts. It doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter how young you are. Children who are followers of Jesus, this includes you. And it doesn't matter if you became a Christian 50 years ago or you became a Christian yesterday. His spirit, the spirit of God, is living inside of each of us. He's given every single Christian, without exception, unique supernatural abilities to build up the church. Remember, that's the language we saw all over 1 Corinthians 14 last week for the upbuilding of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Let all things be done for building up. That's the purpose of these supernatural abilities, to strengthen and build up other people's faith. Remember Romans 1, 11 and 12. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. That's the language. What's the purpose? To strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
both yours and mine. This verse is why I would encourage every Christian not to get hung up on which spiritual gifts you may or may not have. Instead, get hung up on strengthening and encouraging other people's faith. And as you do that, you will realize you have supernatural ability and gifts for that purpose. Let me say that one more time. Don't miss it. Look for opportunities to strengthen and encourage other people's faith. And as you do that, you will begin to realize you have supernatural abilities for that purpose by the Spirit of God in you. Specifically, this is where I would encourage every single follower of Jesus within the sound of my voice, get plugged into building up the church, other people's faith in the church. Like first, commit yourself to a church Commit yourself to building up a particular body of Christ and look for specific opportunities to encourage others' faith in it. Whether that's serving in preschool or children or student ministry, what a golden opportunity to build up others' faith. Or to serve in welcoming people to church, helping marriages in church, encouraging this or that group in the church, serving those with special needs. There are so many opportunities. And what we are seeing in God's word, follow this, is if you are not using the supernatural abilities that God has given you to strengthen others' faith in the church, then you are neglecting the Holy Spirit of God in your life. You are missing out on what God has supernaturally gifted you to do and others are missing out on everlasting good. It's like you have supernatural ability to run or swim a world record time and you are sitting on the couch with it. Don't waste what God has given you. Use your gifts for others' good and for his glory. That's the last part of Our definition of spiritual gifts here, there's supernatural abilities given every Christian to build up the church for the glory of Christ. So I'll close out this topic by pointing us to Ephesians 4, another passage that talks about spiritual gifts in the church. And I want you to see how that passage ends. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Imagery here is talking about how the church is the body of Christ and Christ is the head of the church. So listen to this. Ephesians 4, 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you hear that? When each part, each member of the church is working properly, when each person is is using their supernatural abilities to build up the church, then we will together exalt the head of the church who is Christ. Do you realize what this is saying? If you, with the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, with spiritual supernatural abilities from him inside of you, if you are not using those gifts to the full, then Christ is not getting all the glory he deserves in the church. God is saying in his word, you, right where you are sitting, Christian, you are integral to Jesus being glorified in the church. 
Jesus will not be fully glorified in the church if you are sitting on the sidelines with the supernatural abilities he has given to you. Now, I want to come back to practical application of spiritual gifts in your life in just a minute. But I also don't want us to miss the specific emphasis at the end of these three chapters, last part of 1 Corinthians 14, on the spiritual, supernatural nature of gatherings of the church. So after all this talk about spiritual gifts and chapter 12, the importance of love in chapter 13, building up the body of Christ in the first part of chapter 14, this is how this section of 1 Corinthians closes. Follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 40. The Bible says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. But it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. We'll come back to this. <laughs> or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. We will hit that particular section that I paused on, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees because this passage, so maybe more than any other place in the Bible, gives us a glimpse into what was practically happening when the earliest churches gathered together for worship. So I want to show you real quickly a list of characteristics that make gatherings of the church spiritual or supernatural in nature. So you might write these down. Number one, community participation. Community participation. You read this passage and you see all the different people and gifts involved in the gathering of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 said, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Each one, each person in the church involved in this supernatural gathering of the church, community participation. Now, keep in mind, the gatherings of the church at Corinth were likely much smaller than the kind of gathering we're in right now. Most of these gatherings were likely in homes, so the setting was a bit different. It's not like we're going to come together with thousands of people and everybody gets to pick a song to sing. Everybody teaches a lesson and so on. At the same time, there's obviously a picture here of every person being involved in worship. And this is so important to remember. 
particularly in rooms like we're gathered in right now where there's one or a few people on a stage or even a screen and other people sitting in seats watching, we need to remember that no one on this stage, including me, I am not a performer here. And you are not the audience. There's one audience in this gathering, and we are all gathered to worship Him. God is our audience, and we are all participants at all times. I am preaching. We are listening right now for the glory of God. We sing for the glory of God. We pray together for the glory of God. God is the audience, and we assemble before Him to worship. And I mentioned this last week, but even back up in 1 Corinthians 14, 16, remember the Bible talked about worshiping in such a way that people in the gathering together can say, Amen. This word of affirmation that means, let it be, or may it be so. And the clear implication is that when the word of God is proclaimed or the glory of God is sung, when petitions before God are prayed, then the gathering of God's people should, in a participatory way, be saying out loud together, amen. Now, this is biblical far before it's personal or cultural. And we read this in Deuteronomy a few weeks ago in our Bible reading, God's people shouting amen across the way to each other. How about Nehemiah 8, 5 and 6? Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. All Ezra did was open God's word. He just opened it. And they started shouting, lifting their hands, bowing down with their faces on the ground. And and don't forget, this is where all of eternity is headed. Revelation 5, 13 and 14 gives us a picture of heavenly worship. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. If you don't like to shout amen, you're not going to like heaven very much. Because when worshipful beings see God in all of his glory, when they hear God being exalted in his word, they can't sit silent. They shout, amen, and we are worshipful beings. So please mark it down. Let it soak into all of our hearts. May we grow in this. Worship is not a spectator sport for any follower of Jesus. No, every follower of Jesus should come into the gathering of the church ready to participate, to join in worship before our great God, our audience. Community participation. I gotta speed this list up if we're gonna hit all these. Uh, So second characteristic and why community participation is so important is for the sake of church edification. Church edification. So back to verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14, let all these things, everything, everything be done in worship for building up. Everything in the church's gathering has one purpose, to build up the church, edify the church, gatherings of the church, spiritually, supernaturally designed by God to encourage your faith today. And next week and next week and every time the church gathers amidst all the things we're walking through 
in our lives, to sing, to pray, to hear God's word, to have our faith built up by that singing and praying and celebrating the Lord's Supper and hearing testimonies of people's lives changed through baptism. God has designed our gathering together to build up our faith. The third characteristic of worship we see in this passage, clear order, clear order. So then you get into specific instructions in Corinth about tongues and interpretation and prophecy. And while we're not going to dive into all the details around those, the point I want you to see, there's a clear emphasis on how those gifts are used at different times and different ways, even in a house gathering, all the more so in a gathering the size of ours. It would be extremely unhealthy for people to speak whenever they wanted or do whatever they wanted. That would lead to chaos. Biblically, this is why we plan to sing and pray and study God's word and participate in the Lord's Supper in an orderly way. It's where this whole passage ends, 1 Corinthians 14, 40. All things should be done decently and in order. That clear order necessitates self-control in the church. That's a fourth characteristic. The instructions for the Corinthian church were clear. This person would speak. That person would interpret. At appropriate times, this person or that person should keep silent. Worship absent self-control among the members would be displeasing to God and dishonoring to each other, which leads to another characteristic of spiritual gatherings of the church, peace that reflects God. Peace that reflects God. Verse 33 For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Where the Holy Spirit of God is leading, there will be peace and order. Confusion or chaos in a church gathering is a sure sign that another spirit beside the Spirit of God is at work. Because where the God of peace is at work, there will not be confusion or chaos. And not just peace that reflects God, but spiritual supernatural gatherings of the church demonstrate honor for one another. And this is where we come to verses 34 and 35, which talk about women keeping silent in the churches. And I don't want to skip over these verses because I know there's all kinds of questions coming up, particularly in a church where women speak in the gatherings of our church. And for the sake of time, we don't have the capacity to dive in depth into every word here, but suffice to say, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, these verses definitely don't mean that women should never speak in church. Just three chapters before this, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Bible gave specific instructions for when women pray or prophesy in the church. But you'll remember, when we walked through 1 Corinthians 11, we saw that the church at Corinth was minimizing the good, God-given distinctions between men and women, as well as God's good, God-given design for marriage in a way that a husband and a wife honor each other. We saw how in this historical cultural context at Corinth at that time, there were wives praying and prophesying in the gathering of a church in a way that was communicating dishonor or even shame toward their husbands. So now... Three chapters later in 1 Corinthians 14, we see similar language as Paul again addresses some women, again likely wives, who were apparently speaking in the church in ways that brought shame to their husbands in that historical cultural context. 
We don't know all the specific circumstances behind what that looked like, but we see the Bible here giving specific instructions, much like we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, into a specific context in Corinth in the first century for women and specifically wives to not speak in a way that would bring dishonor to their husbands. In such a way that as we step back when we talked about looking, what's the timeless truth for all people of all time? We would absolutely say, and we see it all over Scripture, that women or men should not speak in a way that dishonors one another or specifically dishonors their spouse in the gathering of the church. So we want to make sure that we are careful that in anyone speaking in the church, in any context, that we are speaking with honor for one another. I know that's a quick overview, but spiritual supernatural gatherings of the church are designed by God to display honor for others. Ultimately is a part of this last characteristic we see in this passage of spiritual, supernatural gatherings of the church. They should display a reverence for God's word. In pointed language, this passage closes by basically saying, if you reject these things above, if you think worship is a spectator sport, if you are not focused on the edification of the body, if you promote disorder, if you display a lack of self-control, if you create confusion or communicate dishonor to others, whether your husband or your wife or those leading in the church, then you are standing against God and his word. Straight from verse 38, the language is strong. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, here she who disregards these instructions from God for gatherings in the church should be disregarded from gatherings in the church because these characteristics are what make gatherings of the church spiritual, supernatural, distinct from every other gathering in the world. And the church has a responsibility to make sure these things are true of its gatherings. So here's what I want to do as we close. In light of these two topics in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, spiritual gifts in the church, spiritual gatherings of the church, I want to ask you to reflect on two questions. And the first is for those of you who are Christians. The second is for those of you who are not yet Christians. So first, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has clearly said in his word that he has given you supernatural abilities to build up the church for the glory of Christ. So here's the first question. What is one specific way you might use your spiritual gifts to build up your church for the glory of Christ? And the language there is intentional. By your church, I mean the local church to which you are committed. And if you're not committed to a local church where you can follow the leadership of that church as a member in it, I exhort you biblically to do so and ask, what are specific ways I can build up others' faith in my church, in the church family I'm a part of? Not sometime in the future, but right now. And some of you are already using your spiritual gifts in the church in all kinds of ways. So maybe this is just encouragement from the Spirit of God in what you are already doing. And a reminder that you have supernatural ability in you to do it. 
Or maybe this is an opportunity for you to pause and say, is there anything God is leading me to do to encourage others in faith beyond what I'm doing now? Just ask the question and discern what God's Spirit in you is saying to you. Regardless, whatever, however you respond to this, do not sit on the sidelines with supernatural ability inside of you. And then the second question, for those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus in this gathering, I want to ask you to consider what is keeping you from trusting God's love for you in your life? Our sincere hope in this gathering is that you would see the love of God for you in a way that leads you to trust his love in your life. God sent his son to die on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin, restored to relationship with him. What is keeping you from trusting God's love for you? And as you answer that question, I'm hoping that for some of you, for the first time today, you think, I can't think of a reason. I don't know why I should not trust today in God's love for me through Jesus. And if that's the case, I invite you to see that's the Holy Spirit of God speaking to your heart right now, doing what he's designed this gathering to do, inviting you to receive God's love, to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. I invite you, urge you to trust in his love today. Or if for whatever reason you're not ready to do that, then I would invite you to answer this question, what's keeping you from taking that step? And then could I just encourage you to share that, whatever your answer to this question would be, with someone else? I think most every follower of Jesus I know has had questions about Jesus, and they took the time to ask them, even if they didn't want to at first. I think of one man I heard about this week, an older man named Mike, who has been battling with cancer for the last 20 years of his life, and over time has basically become immobile. And for all of his life, he's believed that God was either distant from him or maybe even upset with him, that somehow he needed to earn God's favor or love. Ladies and gentlemen, what I shared at the beginning of our time together is true. Christian, you have unique supernatural abilities designed by God to bring others everlasting good. Don't sit on the sidelines with them. Don't waste them. And non-Christian friend, this spiritual, supernatural gathering is designed by God for your everlasting good. If only you will open your heart to him. So let's bow our heads before him. Then our audience, oh God, we've gathered together today to hear from you, to sing to you, to pray to you, to build up each other's faith in you, to see people come to faith in you. So we pray, oh God, that you would be glorified in all these ways. Be glorified in the unique supernatural abilities you have given to every Christian, every single one of your children in your church. May May we all use these gifts to the full 
for your glory. And God, we pray that every week we gather together, there would be spiritual, supernatural work happening in hearts, building up faith and leading people to faith. God, we praise you for what you've done in Mike's heart as he has watched week after week after week. God, we pray that you would do it in multitudes more. Today, next week, Jesus, week after week, we pray that many people, even as we've been reading in the book of Acts, God, may many more be added to our number. May many more come to know your grace and your love. May your word, even as we read this morning in Acts 19, may your word increase and prevail mightily. And grant us as a church family undistracted, undeterred focus toward that end. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide it under 
never gonna let it shine Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from the God of Abraham. Jehovah Jireh means the Lord will provide. At the last minute, God prevents the sacrifice of Isaac and Abraham was told to sacrifice a ram as a burnt offering. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. God tested Abraham's faith and saw how Abraham revered God. Now, God is reminding Abraham again of the promise he made with him that is to greatly bless him and make his seed prosper greatly. To show us how he will keep his promise, the genealogy of Isaac's wife, Rebekah, appears. Now we'll look into Genesis chapter 23. Here is verse 1. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. This shows a shift in generation. Sarah died at the age of 127. Recording Sarah's age is very unprecedented because Sarah is the only woman whose age of death is recorded in the Bible. The age of death of Eve, who was the ancestor of humanity, is not even recorded. That's how important Sarah's position was. If Sarah is 127 years old, then how old is Abraham? There's a 10-year age difference, so he is 137 years old. We can also calculate Isaac's age. Isaac is 37 years old. 
Verse 2 says Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. When Sarah died there, Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and wept over her. Generally in theology, it is interpreted that Abraham went into Sarah's tent and mourned. However, the Jews interpret this a little differently. The Jewish rabbis say Abraham and Sarah were in different places for some unknown reason. They mostly say Sarah was in Kiriath Arba and Abraham lived in Beersheba. It's because in Genesis chapter 22, it says Abraham went from the land of Moriah and returned to Beersheba and stayed there. Therefore, the Jewish rabbis say Sarah died while Abraham was away. After hearing the news, Abraham went to the place where Sarah was and mourned and wept. This fact is not important, but they interpret it this way since two different places are mentioned. Now, the story of buying Sarah's burial site appears. Abraham asked the Hittites to give him some property for his wife's burial site. Here is the Hittites' reply in verse 6. Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. The people knew Abraham walked with God. This is how God's people should be. The worldly people must be able to say, This person is different. He is not like us. It may seem like the Hittites are giving Abraham the land for the burial site without accepting money from Abraham. However, this was the culture of the land of Canaan at that time. The Hittites didn't negotiate first. This is how the conversation went. The seller said, Just take it. How can we receive money? Then the buyer said, How can I just take it? I will pay the appropriate amount. Then the seller said, How can you say that? Do you think I'm trying to get money from you? I'm saying this in front of witnesses, so listen carefully. Please just take it. Then the buyer said, No, I cannot do that. I'm already thankful that you are selling it to me. How can I just take it? Please tell me the price. Then they said, It is very costly. How can I accept that cost? Then the buyer said, No, I will give you the money. Then the seller gave a discount and said, I cannot accept all of it. Since you said you won't just take it, I will just accept some money. This countless conversation back and forth was how negotiations were done at that time. Verse 6 through 15 records this scene. It's a little tedious, but it's amusing to see the culture at that time. In verse 15, the negotiation is finalized. The Hittites first said, The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Then Abraham stopped him at his word. Here is verse 16. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. Abraham no longer negotiated and gave him 400 shekels. We don't know how great the value of 400 shekels is, so we don't place great significance on this verse. At that time, the cost of one acre of land was about four shekels. According to the market value at that time, it was a land one could buy for 40 shekels. 
According to the culture of that time, the Hittites would have started from 400 shekels, and after negotiations, they would have sold it at a discount for 40 shekels. However, Abraham didn't lower the cost at all and bought the land for the full price. Verse 10 mentions Ephron the Hittite who sold the land. A great fortune was brought upon him. This is a very important incident for Abraham because in verse 4, he introduced himself to the Hittites as a foreigner and stranger among them. By officially purchasing the land, he became an official owner of the land of Canaan. The Israelites who left Egypt and were preparing to enter the land of Canaan read the book of Genesis written by Moses. By telling them that our ancestor Abraham bought that land of Canaan with money, it shows them how imperative it was to enter the land. It is amusing how Abraham only wanted to buy the cave. The Hittites also gave something else to Abraham who paid a large sum of money. Here is verse 17-18. through 18. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Verse 19-20 through 20 says, Abraham buried Sarah at that place. This means the land of Canaan is now Abraham's land. By making a burial tomb at that place, it means he will live at that land forever. Later on, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah are buried in that land. God occasionally introduces himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Great significance is given to this place since these three people were buried there. The promised land has officially been given to Abraham. This land is significant because the word was fulfilled. Chapter 23 ends with the story of Abraham preparing Sarah's burial site. Now we'll look at chapter 24, which is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It contains the long explanation of the incident related to Isaac's wedding. Here is chapter 24, verse 1. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. Although the Bible says Abraham was now very old, he lived 35 more years after this. Abraham died at the age of 175, so he is about 140 years old right now. We know this because in chapter 25, it says Isaac gained Rebekah as his wife at the age of 40. So we know that Abraham will not immediately die right now. As Abraham is aging and getting old, he wants to see his descendant. He called the senior servant of the household and made a request. Let's read verse 2. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. When Abraham said, Put your hand under my thigh, he meant, Put your hand under my testicles. This was the culture of making an oath among the Jews. The Jews believed life came from the testicle, so they believed it was the source of life. For this reason, they believed the genital organs were holy. They also believed that after making an oath, if you didn't keep the oath, then their offering who will come from the source of life would retaliate against you because you didn't keep the oath. 
Abraham called his servant and made him swear that he would find a wife for his only son Isaac. Verse 3 through 4 contains the qualification for Isaac's wife. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. From now until next time, we'll look into Isaac's wedding. As I mentioned, this is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, and it has a lot of content. It's because this wedding story is very important. Also, it's not only Isaac and Rebekah's wedding, but it symbolizes the wedding of Christ and the church's bride. Therefore, I hope you could think and understand this part well. Abraham said, Go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. In verse 5, the servant asks, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Then in verse 6, Abraham said, Make sure that you do not take my son back there. In verse 7 through 8, he explained the reason. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me an oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. This is a very important scene. We can see Abraham's faith from what he said. Abraham was saying, God will send his angel before you and choose a woman. If the woman is unwilling to come with you, then she is not Isaac's fiance. We can see Abraham's solidified faith, boldness, and growth in discernment. Through his past experiences, he is able to discern God's will and knows exactly what to do. After hearing the explanation, the servant swore an oath. Here is verse 10 through 11. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. The servant took ten camels with him. At that time, a camel was a symbol of wealth. More than having horses, the wealthy people had camels. The servant didn't take one, but ten camels with him. This shows Abraham's wealth. He arrived in Mesopotamia in the city of Nahor. This place is about 450 miles from Beersheba. The servant traveled a long distance to find a wife for his beloved owner's son. Then he went near the well. There are three stories in the Bible where people met at a well and it led to marriage. The first one is meeting Isaac's wife. The second is Jacob meeting Rachel. The third is Moses meeting his wife Zipporah. Today, we'll talk about the first meeting. The servant went to the well and prayed to God, asking to meet Isaac's wife. Let's read verse 12 to 14. 
Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside the spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, Please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. It was a very specific prayer. He didn't ask this for himself, but for his master. This is an example of a true servant. Likewise, we are the Lord's servant. We also must not ask for things for ourselves, but for the Lord. Next week, we'll continue to look into Isaac's wedding. I hope our faith will deepen, grow, and become more firm as we experience God. We'll end God of Abraham here. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Drops round us are falling, but for the 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.